Welcome to If You Know Your History on FNR Football Nation Radio. My name is Paul Mavridis and I am joined by a very special guest uh, initially and an even more special guest afterwards, but we'll deal with that later. Uh, Andy Pascalides is here to talk about the passing of one of his friends and one of the legends of Australian soccer journalism, John Economis. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, having me on board. Now, you're on the side of the road, so we're just people listening into this, you know, just, <laughs> it's all good, he's safe. We've also, we've, we've, we've had a previous guest on the side of a road as well, so this is not new to us. Um, yeah. But, oh, look, it, it's, it's unfortunate in a way that I've got to do it this way, but I'm on the way to do my uh, nightly duties with my 92-year-old dad yeah, um, who, who brought me into the game um, yeah. all those years ago when I was nine. I had that choice of going to Greek school or football. Incredible, my dad left me with that choice because football <laughs> training was on the same nights as Greek school. And, you know, over the years I've said to him, Dad, if you didn't let me do that, the journey I've taken would not have happened. Wow. So um, I didn't go to uni like all the rest of the family. I was the black sheep. But, um, you know, and that journey it kicked off for me in the media in, in 83, 84 at Australian Soccer Weekly. And this is before the internet and everything else. Um, your staple diet was Soccer Action, Soccer Weekly, once a week. You'd all rush to the news agent on a Tuesday morning and um, nine times out of ten, John Scoop, economist, would have uh, the front page, but he had a subtle way of getting that front page. He'd come in when we'd pretty much laid out the front page on a Monday Arbor and said, guys, guys, stop the presses. I've got a scoop. So, um, yeah, and, and he had a nickname for everyone and um, just a larger-than-life character who, amazing detail, amazing memory. He could remember games, dates, scorers, lineups, and it was like that with a lot of things, not just football. Uh, he was a cricket tragic, um, loved politics. He could tell you all the lines out of every Godfather movie. So <laughs> if you sat down with him, you'd probably have to spend a day just going through that. But, you know, what he, he used to you, – you look forward to seeing him coming into the uh, press box. And um, he was very close at St. George, obviously. Uh, that's where his, uh, his bestie, Johnny Warren, they went to Cleveland Boys mm -hmm. High School. Uh, not far from where I'm parked, actually. And, um, yeah, he, he served numerous roles with St. George, but he loved going to Marconi, as they nickname it, the Palace, and Arpia Leichhardt. He had a very strong relationship with Tony Rossini, who's uh, one of the longest administrators in football when you look at that. I think it's close to three decades for Tony at Arpia Leichhardt. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a sudden passing. Uh, we haven't heard the autopsy report, but I'm led to believe it was a heart attack. Um, alone at home, um, mm. one relative here, relatives back in Kithira, mm. which is a beautiful island off the Peloponnese coast, which ironically where my mother's from, Neapolis, could, we can see across the bay where the wonderful Kithira is. And he only, he only engaged on that Greek side of his family tree um, in the last 15, 20 years. Um, okay. Yeah, much like a lot of us, I mean, I've only been to Greece three times and I'm 59. And I first went there after the World Cup in Germany 2006, um, which is a shame because, you know, you should be proud of your history. And he always was, um, you know, and, and I, I'm just sad because as these years go on, um, I'm part of that old football, um, like George Danikian, of course, and, you know, guys like Ray Gatt, he re retired from the Australian newspaper not long ago and, 
John was one of two journalists to be inducted to the FA Hall of Fame. That's that's a fantastic achievement. Uh, John mean, he, he'd, been, he'd been writing for such a long time. He was an editor. Yeah. He wrote across a number of publications, but most notably, obviously, the Greek Herald and the Australian Cycle Weekly. Yeah. You, I mean, you attribute to him notes how well-loved he was among the biggest names in world football. Oh, yeah. But also, what was great about reading about on Twitter was just the outpouring of um, condolences and memories from people online from the Australian soccer community. Um, I oh, saw Mark Fosnick and Fozzie's um, tribute as well. I mean, yeah. that's how much he, impact he had. You know the thing with John too, and it's a rare trait, let's be honest, it's a rare trait. Um, he would have the confidence of players and coaches and what they would tell him a lot of times would have been a great story to break but out of respect and courtesy for them, knowing that he wants to keep that relationship going because um, you don't want to just get a, a story, put it on the front page, burn your bridges, and, and that's it. John was the reverse of that. And he'd always, you know, his, his stories were not, he never wrote about personal issues uh, or issues with players or coaches or match officials or anyone in the game that might have done the wrong thing away from football. It was all about promoting the game. It mm. was all about, you know, giving his slant. And, and, and the thing was, you know how we would do interviews, like you do interviews now on this show, it might be 10 minutes with someone. John, when he would engage with someone, I've seen it, it wouldn't be like a 10-minute conversation. He would be there three or four cups of coffee later. Two hours later, people are going, oh, geez, time's flown. Off we go. But he had that presence about him. You know, he was very infectious. Um, there's no one that's going to say a bad word about John Economist at all. Uh, as much as he went to university and he, he could have forged a career um, at the top end of town, uh, his passion was football. And uh, that's why he, he, he moved away from that sort of corporate world and focused primarily on football. And there was, there was one comment from a guy in Melbourne who used to put an ad for his pub, and he wrote the comment. It was, I can't. Peter, uh, what's his surname? T R I N H, I think, was his surname. Yeah, Peter Trin. Yeah, but he said, you know what? I didn't really follow football that much. I loved having the ad in there because it got me business. Mm. Yeah, as my pub was reacting to those advertisements. So it just goes to show you, even though that paper was published out of Sydney, it was a national uh, publication. Yeah. You know, and, and it was a very, very important tool for us because you've got to remember, say, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, our staple diet football-wise, pre-SBS, was the ABC match of the day on a Monday night. Yeah. That's it. Mm. That's all we had. Mm. We didn't have pretty much anything else. When I was a kid growing up as well, it was really bizarre, but I used to see Bundesliga highlights yeah. on Channel 10 yeah. on a Saturday morning before I'd go and play. Mm. My grassroots football at 12, 13, 14 years of age, I'd be diving around the lounge wanting to replicate what those Germans were doing. Um, but, yeah, there's a legacy there with John. You know, he he, he impacted so many. Um, his passion was second to none. Really, And, what, and in that era, you, I mean, I mean, it's not that you don't have your passion now as a, as a football writer, obviously, that you still need it to do it, but it's not an easy gig. Yeah. But back in those days when everything was done by hand on like antique equipment and when you're the only people, like, you know, people like Larry Schwab in Melbourne and, you know, yeah. people up in Sydney, it's like if you don't do it, nobody else will and there's nowhere else to get the information from. 
Well, you're right. You know, you just mentioned Laurie. Laurie, again, you know, what a great servant he was. Um, you know, you got Laurie, Peter DeSera, Alan Crisp, Tom McCain from Adelaide. There were so many of those John Economist-like figures that were at the, you know, it was like they were at the front of the battle and we all followed them. We mm. all came through the system and they were the leaders, you know, and you've got to remember in those times our game was being pushed into the, you know, the, 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 the dark spaces of sports pages, you know, mm. little column you know, story about the Socceroos playing as against a groin injury for Jezelenko on the back page. So that was a battle in itself. And guys like John were in the forefront of that battle. And what it does for people like myself and others, I think it actually gives you confidence that what you're doing for football, don't give up on it, you know, keep pushing it. You're going to find barriers pushing forward. I've found barriers. Um, yeah. I'll, but I'll, see, I was blessed. I, I went from Soccer Weekly into radio with 2GB. And John used to laugh because the first time they crossed to me, I was actually covering a Sheffield Shield final and I called the, the last hour. And the, the, the guy crossing to me couldn't pronounce my name. And he goes, oh, look, can I just call you Alphabet? Why don't you shorten your name, Andy? And I was like, that's my name. I mean, yeah. multicultural Australia is proud of its history and it's a rich, rich mix of people of multicultural background, but we're, we are Australian. We're born here, but we're proud of whether we're Greek, Croatian, Serbian, whatever it is, you're going to be proud of that background because that's, that's your parents, your grandparents, and that's their history. And John, John was actually, I think someone asked me the other week, was he born in Greece? No, no, he was, he was born during a war uh, in Queensland, Rockhampton. Oh, wow. Yeah. So dinky die. Economist Aussie. It's interesting. I mean, we, we, we talked a little bit before about Rossidi and Marconi and all the old school kind of scene. It's, I was thinking about what the passing of someone like John signifies, and that's kind of, the, again, another break with that era where the environment, the way the stadiums were, the way the crowds were, the way the leagues were, that the, the, the difference, the gaps between journalists and administrators and players and fans were much closer. You know, oh, you'd, you'd, you'd come into contact with these people walking around the grounds and we just don't have that anymore. So oh, when you read someone like John's work or Laurie's work, you're not just getting someone who's sitting in a press box. You're getting someone who mingled, who was known. Oh, you, you, you know, and I've been there and done it a, a number of times and, and, and with John and a few other guys, you'd, you'd cover a game at Marconi and you wouldn't get home till 10 o'clock. You'd go back to the club and evaluate the game and, and the, you know, presidents, coaches would want to hear his, his thoughts on what, what had just unfolded in that 90 minutes at Marconi Stadium. You know, one of the great things that John's really proud about, and a lot of people wouldn't know, when the New York Cosmos came out with Pele, they played a game not far from here at the back of the Sydney Cricket Ground. It was the old sports ground. Yeah. And John was involved in marketing that game. It was that big, the fans broke down fences because mm. it was a sellout. Uh, I've forever been trying to find footage of that. It's got to be somewhere. I would think maybe the ABC archives. But John reported on that and said, I've never seen anything like it. It wasn't a riot per se. It was just people wanted to see the cosmos because of Pele. Mm. And we, there was no way you could control the crowd. Once they broke down a fence, 
everyone just and they sat on the inside of the ground as well. Security couldn't control them, but they were well behaved. There was not, you know, like unfortunately with our game, you might have a an ethnic rivalry and there's a bit of a, a riot, dare I say, and there's two or three people arrested, and it becomes front page, second page, third page, radio, television, newspapers, online. When you get 60 or 70 arrests at a one-day cricket game, it's on page 12 over two paragraphs or three paragraphs. Um, that's always been one of his bugbears, the way the game's been treated by the, the mainstream media hmm. because there are particular groups or individuals that want to find any excuse to put us down. And you would have seen it yourself first sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's quite sad that obviously John's passed away, but we celebrate a life well lived and a life in service to the game. Um, can we get a bit of an update as well from yourself about the uh, heartbeat of football work that you do and where that's at at the yeah. moment? Look, um, it's been an interesting year. We've had, I just got a report from Queensland, a teenager was saved. Wow. And I'm contacting the gentleman who saved him because I've been talking to Queensland before they had their big announcement last week about rolling out DFibs. Uh, we'd identified 20 clubs in the greater Brisbane area without DFibs. But what I can tell you now with my calculations, Seven players have suffered cardiac arrest this year. Five in New South Wales. Jess Amato at the indoor centre there down at um, where the Grand Prix is. Mm. Is, it, is it a Ted Whitten indoor centre there? Is that what it's called? Oh, I'm not sure what they call it. The well, Jess was there and they had a defib, but they couldn't find it. Oh, wow. And he was saved by an off-duty um, uh, first aider, a, a policeman, actually. So we had five in New South Wales, one in Queensland, one in Melbourne. And in five of those seven incidents, the defibrillator was used with CPR to save them. And that's all I want. I want every club to have this life-saving device. I've gone to federal parliament. I got knocked back. I got told it's a state-by-state issue. But look at John Aaron, what he did. He was the first politician. He rolled out $3.8 million in defibs. And New South Wales followed fairly quickly. The new deputy premier, Stuart Ayres, so I'm part of that whole group with Greg Page from the Wiggles and a, a few other individuals. So all we want, you know, and all the football family or the greater sporting public want, when your husband, your brother, your sister, your mother, your auntie, your uncle goes to a game on a Saturday or Sunday, all we expect is have a great day, but we want to see them come home. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we actually did a whole episode on um deaths on the football field, on the Australian football field. And, you know, when you go back to the early part of the 20th century and you see the newspaper reports, it's, it's things like, you know, tetanus um, or other things that for now we take for granted. You know, it's easy to sort out. But mm. you know, as you move on through the 1960s, you see stories of player collapsed. Yeah. Um, and it's not hard to find those stories and it's really tragic. Uh, and knowing that we have the tools at our disposal to try and avoid those situations is, it makes it feel like it's imperative to get it done. It, it has to be. It should be mandatory. There should be, you know, the governing bodies have got to do more in this space. I've got to be honest. I think they can do more. What I've been doing with Heartbeat of Football, creating this amazing awareness, um, Football Federation Victoria, you know, Kim on and Anthony are very supportive of, of what we're doing. We're looking at going national next year. It's sort of been held back because of the COVID. Um, we're looking at getting some funding. We don't have government funding, but what I can tell you with our testing this year up until, and we do it with Victor Chen. So we'd take your 
blood sample, we tell you your cholesterol and your blood sugar levels, and we take your blood pressure as well. Yeah. We found 38% of people tested this year were advised to go to their GP for further checkups. Mm. That's up from 25%. So mm. all this inactivity, when all these players go back next year, um, particularly the senior players, wouldn't it be great if over 35 players to play before they could register have to show us that they've been to their GP? Well, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the thing, Andy. I mean, we thought about the problem that soccer has, particularly as a unique quality, is it, it's going to have a lot more older players than the other football coaches. Absolutely. It's just the nature of the game. That's what and, the numbers are. You know, when I started uh, from 2014 to 16, there was 15 deaths and three saves. From 2016 to 19, there were three deaths and 15 saves. Mm. Now, late last year, we had three deaths. Mm. This year, we've had seven incidents. All have been saved. Mm. That's a, a stunning turnaround, but there is a fear factor. Uh, talking to the Heart Foundation and Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute, the fear factor is the effect of covid on footballers as well, and anyone with any heart-related issues. When you hear about people passing because of uh, related issues, you know, underlying issues, but a lot of it's lung or heart. Yeah. If COVID gets you and you've got issues there, you're in big trouble. Mm. Um, so there's a lot to do in the education and the awareness. Mm. Um, our, our, our rule mantra next year will be testing, education, awareness, and keep chipping away. We're blessed. We've got people like Tim Kale. Uh, I noticed that John Aloisi is an ambassador for the Heart Foundation, which is brilliant. A lot of people wouldn't know. We've had Socceroos um, have had heart surgery. Mm. Mark Kuzis, mm. Chris Galantis, John Aloisi. I mean, heart disease is the biggest killer. Yeah. It's the biggest killer. And unfortunately, the younger ones that we lose, in, in most instances, like look at Kiki Numov, he had to quit after signing in Spain, after leaving Sydney FC, he had cardiomyopathy, which is a genetic issue that you don't know until it's too late in many cases. So then all the siblings get checked. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult journey, but, you know, like for me, I lost a mate of mine on the field next to me. Um, that triggered me. I'd lost another mate that was playing with Peter Catholicis' team and Terry Patalis, two ex-Sydney Olympic players, John Ennis. I, I played with him, again, a kilometre away. I played with him representative football. He died in front of his father and friends. They were trying to bring him back and his father was on the field. They put a chair there for his father and he was screaming to the clouds in Greek, God, take me, don't take my son. He was shrieking that for five solid minutes. And, you know, I talked to widows. I talked to families that have lost loved ones. You know, one guy thought he had heartburn for four weeks. He was getting Alka-Seltzer. Was, it was the onset of a heart attack coming, and they lost him. So there's lots to do in the education awareness in this space. Um, I'm glad that, um, you know, the A-League, Every club has a defib. Every game cannot start without a defib. But it wasn't always the case for the W League. Mm. That was only a recent thing where the defib has to be there with the fourth official. Um, and that'll become an issue when we talk to our next guest, Greg Downs. We're running out of time, Andy. Thanks for your time. Talk about John Economist and Thank obviously you. your heartbeat of football. We really appreciate it. Time for a break. Yeah. 
Welcome back to If You Know Your History on FN Afrikaan Nation Radio. My name is Paul Mavrudis and with me is scholar par excellence, uh, Greg Downs. Greg, how are you? Hello, Paul. Nice. I'm very well, thanks. Nice to see you again. It's been a, it's been a little while. Of course, you're in, in lockdown, but I haven't, haven't been to Melbourne now for a little bit. But yeah, nice to see you. You're looking well. Oh, uh, it's the the light makes my hair look really nice. Yeah, you see, very nice. Yeah, it's a new yeah. style. I see. Uh, well, yeah, because <laughs> you have to get the haircut. <laughs> it's it's a nightmare. Um, I, I should note all my all my conflicts of interest here. We're here to talk to Greg about his new book, Dedicated Lives: Stories of Pioneers of Women's Football in Australia, which is out through Fair Play Publishing. But my conflict of interest. Let's just get it out of the way. I know Greg. For some years now, because we had at one point the same PhD supervisor, one Ian Sison. Um, so, you know, we both had to go through the process during a thesis where at the end of it, you have to go, thank you, Ian Sison, for your support <laughs> and your mentorship. Um, yes. <laughs> and obviously, also, I, you know, I quoted Greg's thesis in my own thesis as well. Yeah, because I did chapters on women's football, um, so that came in handy. Thanks a lot, Greg. Um, it's okay. And we did have, and we did work together at um, Victoria University for a while. Yes, we as, did. Um, not, not, in this, not, not in the exact same department, thank goodness. No. But you know, we we had you know coffees and teas at the same places. Correct. Yeah. Um, we all um, worshipped at the altar of Ian Sison's little fiefdom, as it was then. <laughs> Yes, that's right. He used to get upset with that as well, and that's well, better or worse. That's right. So, we'll see. <laughs> this book of yours is based on your uh, PhD thesis. It's obviously yes. a cut-down version. Pretty much all the theory's gone out of it. We can talk about the theory a little bit later, but it's essentially the the interviews themselves and the profiles themselves of eighteen of your interview subjects. Correct. I, I tried to. Yeah, I took them uh, because the thesis was just used, uh, parts of the individual um, interviews were mm. used to support various themes that, that emerged from the, from the research. But in this book, the, the really the whole, the, the whole interview goes into that. Um, so the women's stories are reproduced in full, but hopefully I tried to put it in a, like a chronological order. So starting with Elaine, uh, and working its way through to the like the two thousands from the nineteen seventies. I mean, when I read the thesis a long time ago, now, I mean, obviously the thing that always gets you in an old history is the interviews. I mean, yes, the theory is there and it's, an, and yeah, it's yeah. important, but it's the stories themselves. So, I remember reading like many years ago, and I still got it on my shelf. Um, Elizabeth Kubler Ross's, um, you know, death and dying. Um, the, the famous book where the five stages of grief emerges from. Yep. And, yeah, look, there's a lot of theory in there. But I keep going back to the interviews, to the actual stories that the patients, the subjects are, are talking yep. about. Yep. Um, so, I mean, it's great that the fuller interviews have managed to get through to a new publication. But also, it, obviously, it's worthwhile for me because I've already got the thesis. So, you know, it's, it's, it's yep. worth me spending the uh, 30-odd bucks to get a new copy of this, yep. this book. But... It's, it covers a lot of things. It, co- it, it really is a tapestry of, say, 40-odd years of women's soccer in Australia and the various motivations 
pathways, obstacles, yeah. um, how they got, how people get into the game. What surprised you the most about all the different stories that you heard? I mean, in general, about the, the sort of. Um, I, I just I was surprised. I think when I started, I was probably very naive in terms of, you know, the depth of the history, because there was very very little done or very very, very little about or written about the women's game, and I think I was surprised about how um, complex and deep some of the stories or how much was involved and how much they actually dedicated, um, yeah, yeah, dedicated lives. How much they dedicated their lives to develop mm. the game. And I, and I think the thing that come out of a lot of it was they were just they were just so keen for acknowledgement for the people that put that time and effort in and then dedicated their lives and sometimes their whole families to the development of the game never had any recognition, uh, never had any respect. And I think just having someone come along and give them that opportunity um, was uh, they were very very. And they're still to this date. I mean, what is it now? I think I started talking to them in 2011. And we're now well, 10 years later, nearly mm. 12 years. And I still talk to them, not all of them, but, I, you know, some of them. Um, and uh, they still um, are very happy about the process and having their stories and and the pioneers, you know, be acknowledged. Th- those support structures are really interesting I mean, obviously, then the first question becomes, how did you become involved in the game yeah. to the participants themselves? And obviously, in your story, you, you bring up the fact that your daughter started playing yeah. and that's how you got involved. Yeah. And that's certainly for a lot of the family members who are involved in this. Um, yes, there's some who are involved, you know, their fathers or husbands or yeah. brothers or whatever yeah. are, are plays. But just as often, it's just like, well, the, the women or the girls themselves started playing and then sort of dragged people along with them for the ride. Yeah, well, uh, yep, a lot of brothers, well, you know, like even if uh, this woman's not in the book, but hopefully in there, so Pat O'Connor, who is very, um, um, sadly, her husband's only recently passed, but she's um, started, virtually started a lot of the football in New South Wales when she came here in 1963. But she started playing, she come from England, but when she started playing, she played because her husband was playing. or And a lot of the others started playing because they, their brothers were playing. And they were dragged along to the games or the, the training. And, um, you know, they were, they, so they said, well, if he can play, why well, I want to play. You know, so they, family was very important into, in why a lot of them started to actually put their boots on. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting as well. I mean, in the sense that when you go across the different states from Queensland to northern New South Wales to Sydney to, to Melbourne, it doesn't all line up. I mean, it seems to be a bit easier in some places to get started as a girl soccer player than it did, say, Melbourne, for instance. Um, the, because at least the soccer infrastructure, the way it was, it was not necessarily ethnically aligned. You didn't have those issues. Um, it was regional, so, you know, sporty girls were kind of accepted. It just seems a little bit easier for some people in some places. Oh, I'd say so. I think that, I think in the bigger cities, I think once like for Melbourne and Sydney and particularly well, I, I think a lot of the uh, the women that I interviewed, I, I suppose, were more uh, Victorian-centric mm. or Melbourne-centric. And once the once the, the women started and once the, the, the actual game started to grow, that's right, they had that infrastructure, although they were trying to move in on to the games or the grounds that were, were controlled by the men or the men's clubs and stuff like that. But, I mean, that, that's right, the infrastructure was there, the numbers were there. 
so that it grew quickly. Like if you look at northern New South Wales and when they started, they had four teams, but they had to go, you know, that's that the area is a lot smaller and a lot faster and the numbers just aren't there. So yeah. it's a bit slower, you know. I, I mean, I mean these, one of the things that when I first read the thesis, and it certainly comes through in the book as well, is it reveals a community of Britishness, of Englishness. Yes. That's right. Yes, very much so. We we talk a lot about in Australian soccer history about obviously the post-war continental European ethnic boom yeah. and the influence that has. Yeah. Uh, in more recent times, I suppose the work that people like Andrew and Roy have done, and yeah. you know all sorts of Australian soccer historians focus on the very Scottish and English character of you know pre nineteen forty five soccer in Australia. Yeah, but, you know we. I mean, it's, it is women's football, and obviously the gender element is the key part to focus on. But my goodness, when I saw that, I'm like, this is incredible. This is a different ethnic dimension. Yep. And, some of the, and, and some of the interview subjects are quite aware of it, that that's how it starts. Yep. You know, they, they know about football in England, whether it's men's football or women's football, or whether it's just because it's part of the culture. They're aware that's of right. soccer. Um, and it makes total sense for them to get involved here because their husbands, their brothers get involved here in, this, in yeah. certain cases. Yeah. Well, I think their families are more so and when they come here for mm. various reasons, for work or whatever, their parents are and hook up with clubs very much, you know, straight away, communities, similar communities. But, and the, but if you go through, I mean, that's right, you, you're right. There's a lot of them now linked to England or Scott, you know, to Great Britain have, you know, fathers have played in Scotland or have brothers have played or have no relatives have played or have played themselves, like Betty Hall played for Luton Ladies and then come over here. And, of course, people find out about that and, of course, contacted her. And I, oh, I hear you played soccer in uh, England, Betty. Can you help us get a team going here? And I love Which that story did. that Betty has where she's talking about, you know, some game that they played and there was some incident in England and it gets reported in the Herald here, in Herald Sun. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> That's right. I think even Roy, I think in one of his, um, his historical publications stated that um, uh, a lot of the women or a lot of people were reading about some of the escapades mm. of women's teams in England or Great Britain during the war. Uh, and, um, and I suppose that had some kind of, you know, they were seeing the women do well and uh, and participating in a sport which wasn't, Normally, well, well, certainly for the 1920s movement, we sort of discussed the where does that impulse come from in the 1920s, and it's like, well, clearly they probably read about it, yeah. or they've heard about it from people coming back from England after the war in, in their nurse work or whatever. Yeah. Um, but you know, again, getting into the game, it's, I mean, there's all we're talking, we're talking about the gatekeepers and the permissions and all this kind of stuff in the moment, yeah. but there seems to be a real split between a lot of the girls who are like. We don't even consider that they shouldn't play soccer. It's just like, I want to play soccer. That's yeah. a totally legitimate thing for me to do. And then there are other interview subjects who are like, girls can play soccer? <laughs> it's that question mark. It's that aha moment. What, what we can? Well, I want to do this. That's right. Yeah. And, it, it, and it, yeah, this is, we're, we're at a stage now where it's basically become normalized. Girls can play pretty much any sport they want to. Yeah. Um, it's, it's important to get down these stories about all the different ways 
people came to the game in that era um, when there weren't fixed, established, long-running sort of networks and pathways and infrastructures. Oh, yeah. I mean, if they didn't know, I mean, if the girls wanted to play soccer, uh, they play. They play with boys' teams or they some of them cut their hair a bit or they disguise themselves to go to those sort of limits to play. I mean, others, as you said, would come to the game because they, as they found out, girls' teams were being created and go, well, that's what I want to play, you know. My brother plays that, so if I can play now, I'm going to do it. But that's right. There's, the stories, yeah, people don't realise that's why history is so important and I think I, I think you want to talk about oral history a bit later, but the stories uh, and the experiences of these people um, during these, this time or any kind of period is very, very important. It's interesting because, I mean, this again, it, you, the things you take for granted now, again, it, a lot of that comes down to now. And I think this is why I'd recommend the book to pretty much anybody, but especially any woman, any girl who wants to play the game now, anyone who wants to get into administration needs to read this book just to understand how little there was in terms of infrastructure. You see multiple interview subjects taking up multiple roles at the same time. So the oh, yeah. players and their coaches and their administrators and their fundraisers. And each step is building upon threadbare infrastructure. And everything that you know women have got now, and it's still not enough. They still need more. Even we were talking about Andy Pascalini before, but defibrillators for W League. Why were they for the A-League first and not the W-League yeah. as well? Um, it came through a really difficult process. And it's, it's even within the broader context of sports development in general in terms of uh, infrastructures and processes and committees and governance. Yeah. When we look at, say, the history of the VFL or the New South Wales Rugby League, you know, run on a shoestring budget basically by comparison and, you know, a volunteer staff and whatnot, we can't. We sometimes struggle to imagine comparing it to now, where those organisations have hundreds of staff and billions of dollars at their disposal. But yet, you don't actually have to look very far to see the example of how a governance structure, an infrastructure process develops, because it's right there in front of you. It's women's sport. I mean, some of those, some of those, well, a fair majority of those women. Uh, particularly the ones that have been in the game since, you know, the 1960s right through. And some of those now are, are quite elderly. But are they 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 covered those, you know, as you say, player, administrator, coach, referees. Yeah. Volunteers. I mean, the volunteer um, brigade or that that, that level that supported and made that, that uh, sport grow uh, was phenomenal. If you take Elaine Watson, Betty Hoare, those, the clubs that they played for, the clubs that they supported, you know, the fundraising they did for, for buildings, dressing rooms, playing fields, it just goes on and on. And, I mean, without those people and without those struggles, um, you know, they wouldn't, be, uh, they wouldn't be where they are today. And because of, I mean, it's, 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 it's quite clear as well in the, in the selection in this book as well where, a lot of the people are very aware of the history and the struggle. And one of the concerns that they have, and it's repeated a number of times across a, a few people, is once they make the mergers with, they get amalgamated into the yeah. men's mainstream system is, 
not just will they get treated like second-class citizens or even third-class citizens behind, not just the men, but the boys, but will it all be just treated as, well, we're here now and that's it, it's done, it's all accomplished. And what you lose then is the history of that struggle, the knowledge of the struggle. And certainly in the case of the Victorian response, like Maggie Kumi, um, very aware that they had to retain the knowledge and the history yeah. of what had come before. Because if they didn't have that knowledge, that if they lost it, then everything that they fought for was always at risk of um, going back to what it was. Yeah. I think Teresa Diaz in the book says it really well, that she was concerned that if uh, and when the Australian Women's Association amalgamated with the men's game, that they didn't see it as, okay, we've just started now. We didn't start the game in 2000. Mm. This game has been played for decades before that, and that history they were worried that that history would be lost. And I think that was one of the main struggles that they had to deal with. If we go this way, does that mean, you know, we don't want the game, the women's game, to just be seen, okay, we're with the men's now and this is where we start. We don't want to diss and lose that history. And the pioneers that put in all that work to get them where they were at that point. I mean, there were reasons why they probably were. It was a, a fait accompli, but, and they had to... Uh, to amalgamate with the men if they wanted to sort of play internationally as well under FIFA, mm. but uh, but that's that's a very real reason, and they they were very very concerned about that. And it's you when you don't have the depth as well. So I mean, a lot of those early days, you know, you have twelve year olds playing with thirty year olds. Yeah, and. I don't know how they did that. Uh, well, I think it was one, I can't remember who it was, but somebody was talking about being, I think it was maybe Teresa Days, I can't remember, but, you know, talking about being goalkeeper and getting flipped in the air within about five minutes. Yeah. But it's, do you wonder sometimes when you, when you were doing these interviews whether if other mainstream sports like Australian Rules or Rugby League were available to these people, would they have taken those sports up? Was soccer just a convenient option in some cases because it didn't have an entrenched kind of as much an entrenched opposition to women playing? Uh, that's a good point. That's a good question. Um, I never, I never, I gave it much thought really, but I, I think that soccer probably would have been a, bit, a little bit more available to them. I mean, they would have been, it would have been a, a more amenable, mainly because of family connections and stuff. I think, um, and. I think the the opportunities for them to play, say, rugby league or AFL, probably wouldn't have been there. It would have been a greater barrier for sure. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's I mean, quite a few times they want to talk about the physicality of playing. Yeah. They, they enjoy that exp- the way you can express yourself playing soccer. You can't say in netball or in hockey in the same kind of way. Even those hockey is a very similar sport logistically, um, conceptually. Um, that certainly comes up a lot. I, I want to express myself physically in yeah. this way. Yeah. Um, they like to play the game hard as well. They like to play it. They like I, to I've play seen it, it firsthand. Yeah. I've seen it at the lowest levels. Um, it, it's one of the things that comes up that's really interesting and, and it's a sort of a minor threat, but it does run through. I mean, yeah, they talk a lot about the sacrifices they make to play internationally and, and state teams and to do tours yeah. and whatever. 
And there's also the players that um, sort of rebelled against that as well a little bit. They didn't like how serious it got. Yeah. And, that's a, and that's a really interesting because sometimes you, you look at women's football and say, are they trying to be too much like a man? How does it maintain its own cultural particularities? Um, the netball and Liz Ellis asked this question about the professionalization of women's sport in general a few years ago. It was a really interesting question. How do we avoid making women's sport exactly like men's sport with all the, the vices and the aggressiveness and the sort of lack of camaraderie involved in that? Where you see even like social level male soccer players are hyper competitive. Yeah. Uh, you get aggro. Um, whereas, <laughs> whereas. I think professional sport brings that anyway, Paul. Sure. Modern, but, modern. Even, but, but even very low levels yeah. of men's soccer have that quality. Yeah. And it's interesting when you watch, there's a Victorian uh, videographer, uh, Stephen Gray who has a series called Football Chaos, where he video he films games from all sorts of aspects from the tour and soccer yeah. every weekend. Yeah. And one of the great things that he does is he films very low-level women's soccer. Yeah. Sometimes even the churches leave. Yeah. And it's purely social. Yeah. And what you notice, and it's what I've noticed when I first started watching women's soccer maybe 15 years ago, when I was watching a friend of mine play, how much they just love it. They just love it. Yeah, it's the game, it's the friendships. Yeah, it's the social. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. There's that love and that social aspect of the game, and I think they just want to play. And I, I suppose if you're talking about that upper elite level of professional sport, if you're talking Matildas mm. and the and the and the women and the girls that are trying to get in and break into that, of course, there's that mm. hard line aspect. But, but, the, but the more the more players that women soccer gets, yeah. the further yeah. down that professional athlete yeah, comes. That's right. And it's an interesting challenge for what women's soccer is, especially for people that have grown up with it a certain way, you know, who who they talk about the friends and the relationships and the camaraderie yeah. and the fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a very different thing now because the top is coming closer in a lot yeah. of ways. So you know you've got yeah. NPL players who are trained who are getting you know starting to get a little bit of money for what they're doing. They're being treated with professional characters and so forth. Yeah. Um, and it leads on into the other aspect as well, where you know people want to continue coaching, but if you, but if you're a woman, you can't coach men's teams because that's pretty much our most men's teams are not even going to get close to considering that. Mm-hmm. And yet the cost of becoming a women's coach is the same as becoming a men's coach, but there isn't the same money for coaching women's teams. Mm-hmm. So it, it's interesting to see all the different motivations and sort of colliding against each other. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see this as a sort of a footnote, as a sort of, sorry, not footnote, sort of like a, a touchstone. This is where we were at at a particular point in time and sort of to measure that against. We, we need those kind of milestones. And that's that's a really good thing because obviously we have Elaine Watson's books and um, there's more women's soccer books coming out. and all this, But yeah. this is a really key one because it captures 40 years of very different kinds of struggles. And Heather Reid's book as well with Marion Stell, yeah. it's a similar yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, from a different angle, from the very top echelon, because she covered yeah. exclusively the Matilda's yeah. journey in that drew that yeah. Um But it, it's it's a fascinating book. It's dedicated lives, stories of pioneers of women's football in Australia. It's by Greg Downs, my fair pay publishing. Uh, it's about 30 odd bucks. Well worth it. It's very 29, good. 20, I think it's 29.95, mate. Cheap, cheap at half the price. Yes. <laughs> Thanks um, for the fine words, Paul. 
we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with Greg again. We'll talk about a little bit about oral histories and the methodology behind writing a book like this. This is If You Know Your History on FNR for Foundation Radio. Welcome back to If You Know Your History on FNR Football Nation Radio, streaming on Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. Uh, with us is Greg Downs. Uh, we were just talking before the previous segment about his new book, Dedicated Lives, uh, Stories of Pioneers of Women's Football Australia. It's an old history, and, well, I thought it'd be useful just to have a little bit of a chat about the process of doing oral history. Um it, especially in an academic context, because I don't think a lot of our listeners who do histories would have ever done that aspect of it before. Um, before you started your PhD thesis, Greg, how many did you have any experience at all with oral history and its practice, its theory? Nil. <laughs> <laughs> I was very, very naive um, in terms of the oral history process. Um, I thought I get on quite well with people. I like talking to people, I like listening to people. And I, I'm, I think my personality lends itself to that kind of practice. But once you start and get into the, um, well, the academia, academic side of things particularly, um, there's a lot to it. And I think the main, the main part, particularly from the beginning, it's the ethical practice that uh, particularly the university requires you to go through and, um, there's an ethics approval process that you need to undertake, um, and uh, that's just in the beginning. And of course, then when you go into the actual process and um, um, engaging with your participants or interviewees, you need to be uh, very mindful of uh, the individual that you're talking to and and what you want to get out of the conversation, what questions you've got to ask, and so forth and so on. I'll just explain to our listeners that when you do a PhD thesis, at least at Victoria University as it was then, yeah. uh, you have to do at least a couple of um, compulsory units of study. One is about research methodologies and how to write a thesis. And the other one was about ethical considerations across, the, across a range of issues. And I would sit in these classes and... I was doing a literature thesis, and meanwhile, I had bio people doing biomechanical and bioethical, you know, theses, scientific theses, um, social work theses. And I'm sitting there like, yeah, this is no, this is no good to me. I mean, I can learn something in biosmosis, I suppose, but I mean, I I was fortunate in the sense I didn't have to do the ethical process. Because really, I was just looking at books mostly. Um, but I was, there'd be times when, you know, you're sitting up in, upstairs in one of the PhD doctorate rooms where people you know, have their own space, the computers, and you'd see some of these students go, oh, they've gotten right back from an ethics committee again, or they didn't understand this, why would they let me do that? And you just try to be sympathetic and say, well, you know, sometimes they don't trust the interview subjects enough. Um, these are people dealing with like refugees and so forth. They're like very yeah, vulnerable yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at what point did you think this is going to be a lot harder than <laughs> you thought it was going to be? When I started to write the, uh, well, 
Well, the ethic, I think I had to put my ethics application in a couple of times. I never went to an ethics class. I didn't know they had them. Oh. Um, so I, I was lucky there. But um, I think once I started to, when you have to choose your methodology and then you have to uh, go through the process of explaining why you chose mm. it and the benefits for it, um, what was involved in it, um, and the um, ups and downs and the pros and cons of doing that methodology. Because a lot of people, you, um, well, academics will, would argue that the oral history process or methodology is not solid. And there mm. are a lot of people that argue against it based on the valid, you know, the credibility of people's memory, for example. Um, was it, um, you know, is that true history? It's only people's um, memory of that incident or whatever, the past. Mm. Um, and, and whether um, and what kind of bias that would bring to that. And mm. then you have to look at yourself as the interviewer. I'm a male, middle age, I think I was mid-50s then. I was a white male and I was talking to women about a women's sport. Was that appropriate? And then some people would say no. Mm. Because I would be a bias, I'd be pushing, maybe I'd be pushing my agenda instead of letting them tell their stories um, and there's all those kind of those issues floating around bias, memory, credibility. I'd say you've got to get your grip, you've got to get your head around that, and then you've got to prove to the, to the reader or the examiner that what you were going to do was going to usurp all those issues. So obviously the first step is to actually get the, the trust of the ethics committee. That's correct. <laughs> and then you've got to get the trust of the interview subjects, the participants, to use the correct terminology. Yeah. Um, how do you going to trust the participants in that situation? Well, well, I suppose you just, I, I suppose there's a degree. I just went in very, very open and I, 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 I told them we had a, we had a, a, a participant's uh, a, approval on an agreement form which they would read. Um, and that would, I would explain that to them, that this is the process that I would be going through, that if they had any problem, they didn't want to continue it, they didn't have to. Um, and I would let them have a look at the questions beforehand so they, they knew whether there was anything that they wanted to ask. It was, And I just asked the questions and trusted that they would tell me their story. So that's, what I, that's all I basically wanted to hear. I, I wasn't trying to throw any trick questions in there. I, I just wanted to let them tell their story, basically. And um, Yeah. It's, it's, I, mean, I mean, some of the people you spoke to were clearly well-educated, were from, had academic backgrounds themselves. So some of them understood the process. They, they, they were accomplished in their own right in yeah. terms of high-achieving high fields. Yeah. But quite a few of the people you're talking to, um, you know, they're like, I dropped out of school at such and such an age. Yeah. Uh, well, they come from very working class yep. backgrounds. So the way that different groups sort of approach the, an academic person is quite different, isn't it? Yeah. I, these, well, I never had, uh, thinking back, I never had any of those kind of problems that differ. Of course, they speak to you differently and uh, they express themselves differently. What I did notice sometimes, though, that once the transcript of the interview went back to the interviewees and they would read it. And once they knew it was to be published, some of them would go, oh, I don't want that part in it. Well, they don't want, you know, they'd be a little bit more uh, retrospect on actually what they were actually saying. And if they knew the whole interview was being 
sort of published, mm. they were a little bit worried about some of the issues that were raised. And so um, we... Were there particular those... issues that were raised that across the board that were sort of like people were afraid to speak up about or...? Yeah, well, well they might have mentioned it to me in the interview while we were chatting away, but they might be have mentioned somebody's name um, about something that had happened and they thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't... I don't want that to be said because I don't want their friends or they I know them or I don't want people to get the wrong idea about what I'm trying to say and stuff like that. It's very interesting because obviously the issue du jour of women's soccer the last week is abuse and harassment and sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously the sexuality stuff doesn't come up in this and I understand people will be uncomfortable speaking a lot about a lot of those things for a lot of reasons. And but one of the 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 common the most common thread is how much of a positive spin people try to put on their time in the game. Um, and I wonder if there's any, if if you felt there was any sort of sense of they were trying to put too much of a positive spin or trying to sort of negate some of the negatives that they were experienced? Um, I think, no, I think they were all really, really honest. There were, um, I didn't, in terms of the sexuality, from my position, I didn't. I didn't want to go in directly about the sexuality issue. Mm. I asked uh, open questions, and some of the women went there, yeah, um, and some didn't. But I, I didn't press that. I didn't think back in those back then that I was in a position where I was going to make come sort of judgment calls or comments based on women's sexuality. So I, I sort of left that a little bit, you know, alone. Mm. Um, but if they wanted to make a comment, and some did, you know, uh, um, and was very open, I don't think anyone. I mean, there might have, there were some changes at the back end because they were a little bit concerned about some comments. But I think the majority were very, very honest, and that, I think that come through very clearly. It's an interesting question because I mean, one of the things I've, I've sort of written down as a note is. I mean, when you're doing the interviews and then you're writing it down and transcribing it, you want to get across the natural voice yeah. of the participant. And I think you do that pretty well here. Like, I know Maggie Kumi. One of the interview subjects is Maggie Kumi, a stalwart yeah, yeah. Victorian soccer. Yeah, yeah. And I know, I've known her for about a decade now, I think. Yeah. And I read that bit, I'm like, yeah, that's Maggie. Yeah. The vocabulary. Well, think, yeah. The yeah. Vocabulary, I didn't change the way, it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, I didn't change the interviews. I wanted to leave them, uh, and a lot of them had some kind of, you know, they'd repeat themselves a little bit. I didn't want to go back and really uh, tidy them up to a degree, if you know what I mean, in mm. one of a better term. But, yeah, I think that brings their character through a little bit. How reliable are memories? How, I mean, what did you find out about memory when you when you completed this process? Um. That's a good question. I I, I asked. Um, there was a, an author. Uh, I went to have a chat. I went to one of his promotioners of his book, an Australian author, and I, now I can't even. Uh, William McInnes. Uh, you, know, you know William McInnes. Yeah, he came to my house once to do a filming for. Um, yeah, for uh, Blue Healers. Okay. Well, he was he was uh, promoting one of his books up in Byron and I went to, uh, it was a like a drinks and nibblies function and um, Gail was, we were sitting there and I was thinking about writing uh, a history of my mother at the time and, and my brothers always had a go at me because they reckon my memory's shot. 
and they and I don't every all of my stories were not true. So we asked him the question: What happens when you write stories about your from based on your memory of your family? And um, and your brothers or sisters disagreed. He goes, I don't. That's my memory. That's more. That's all important. That's what I write based on what I remember. So I, I I took a lot out of that, and I thought that was very very important. You don't. I didn't. Um, I didn't learn anything new about memory per se, but I think um, I based um, I based my belief on their honesty and what they told me, and and I think you can tell when you talk to people, oh, they were this so pleased and so happy to be able to share their story mm. and that someone was actually taking them seriously that I had no problem with believing it's, them. It's, a, it's an interesting case study in the case of, say, women's soccer in general, but, you know, especially in Victoria. I mean, there's so little documentation which survives a women's soccer across the board for all sorts of reasons. Mm. So oral history is almost like default the way you have to go about writing yeah, history of soccer, but you have this situation in Victoria, for instance, where the, the the women's clubs are less less clubs and more teams. So when they find the going tough at one particular men's club, they move to another club, and then they move again, and the name changes, and you see that come up a lot. And then there's a whole black hole of information from about 1984 to about 1992. So. I know uh, Victoria's history and heritage coordinator, Tony Pasoglia, will be fascinated with this book because it's got at least some recollection, vaguely at least, of yeah. timelines of what happened in those kind of missing eight or ten years. It's, <laughs> But you, you sit there sometimes and you're like, I, I, I mean, I, I, how do you make sense of it? How do you verify a lot of this information? And I guess you have to just trust people in this kind of in this particular instance. Yeah, yeah. I, I did. I tried to track different things or different comments for um, that related to different clubs. And some I got under. I have talked to say Watsonia Football Club and uh, where um, Betty Hoare and Mick Horse uh, contributed in their early days back in the eighties. And uh, Caroline Monk played, and I think she was the only girl that come from a woman that um, played for the Matildas from that club. So I have had, so I, I, if I can, or I can find links, I try and contact different places to verify things. And they, they've been very, very helpful. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work. I said, there's a lot of opportunities for work out there. If someone wants to do it. <laughs> Last question. Um, yeah. Most of the time, are you interviewing one-on-one? Um. Most of the time, I did have occasions where, like, a couple would turn. Say, Nikki Leach and Caroline Monk, say, for good friends, turned up together. Um, I didn't expect that, but it, it happened. Um, and I think Therese Diaz uh, and um, Maggie Coomey were together. And obviously, Mick, Mick and, and Betty. Betty yeah. yeah. And yeah. I'll finish up on this because actually, years before you started this project, I think, you know, Ian and I actually interviewed Betty and Mick. Yeah, or part of a project, and it's almost like one person. Yeah, so they'd obviously he'd be going, "No, that's not right," and they'd be arguing <laughs> they'd be about. Jumping. So it's interesting because obviously it's. I mean, obviously they share a lot of the history. They come up through it together. Yeah. Um, but really, the person you really want to talk to is Betty. Yeah. But they're kind of inseparable. Yeah, and Betty's memory was a little bit. 
uh, wasn't what she constantly say, oh, I can't remember the date, but then Mick had come in and say it was in 19 whatever. And I think in the thesis, I, I talk about both of them. They, they're interviewed separately, but in the book, I just concentrated more on Betty and wove Mick in there. Yeah. Um, rather than and, do, and that's, uh, and that's certainly, I mean, it's a really interesting, I mean, there's a lot of different dynamics between the men and women's relationships, yeah. uh, family relationships. That's the one where it's just so intertwined. It's yeah. Oh, I mean, definitely. It's well, they were married at a young age. They were married like in their late teens in in London. So they've been together for you know their whole ride's been football. Their whole mm. life's been football. So then that shows. Well, Greg, I think we've come up to the end of the show. Thanks for your right, time. Um, I really appreciate you getting to promote the book and hoping that a few people would go out there and buy it. Um, and thanks for having a chat a bit about oral histories as well and give us a little bit of an insight into how it works on the academic level. It's not just rocking up to someone in the street with a microphone going, tell me about your life. That's right. <laughs> I wish it was. All right. Thanks, no, mate, Steve. thank you very much for the offer, I, um, and it's really nice to see you again. Oh, it's always good to talk to you. Yeah, okay, um, mate. Thanks right. again. See ya. See ya. Uh, and that's the end of the episode. You've been listening to... If you know your history on FNR Football Nation Radio, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks, Paul.